0: This podcast is funded by Ted Dintersmith, the executive producer of the acclaimed film Most Likely to Succeed, and the author of the best-selling book, What School Could Be.
1: Hey everyone, this is the What School Could Be podcast. I am your host, Josh Rapoon. This is the second episode in a series of special episodes that come from the Game Changer Big Think speaker series in the whatschoolcouldbe.org archives. Keep in mind the audio comes from Zoom calls, so expect a couple of bumps and knocks along the way. On the other hand, the conversations you will hear are incredible for their depth and insight into what school could be and what could be school. The following conversation happened on December 1st, 2022. Kapono Siati and I hosted a panel of four brilliant futurists who discussed the need to educate not one, but multiple generations of teachers and students who will intentionally shape the future of society, resulting in a world that is more just, more equitable, and fully sustainable, and do it in a way that avoids negative unintended consequences. This panel did a remarkable and wonderful job unpacking all that is hashtag shaping the future and hashtag what school could be. Our four panelists were Dr. Kristen Alford, who is the director of the Museum of Discovery at the University of South Australia. Laura McBain is the co-interim managing director at the Hasso Plattner Institute of Design at Stanford's d.school and the co-director of the K-12 Lab at Stanford's D- School in California, Zoe Weil, is the co-founder and president of the Institute for Humane Education and a pioneer in the comprehensive humane education movement. Zoe calls Maine her home. Dr. Aubrey Yi is a futurist, systems thinker, and passionate advocate for positive social transformation in Hawaii and is a facilitator and coach for our beloved futures, among many other pursuits and passions. And now, here is What School Could Be's game-changer conversation with four brilliant futurists.
2: Welcome, I'm Siari, Executive Director of What School Could Be. And I'm really excited to host this conversation with uh, my very good friend, Josh Rapoon. Hey, Josh. Hello, everybody. I wanna, I wanna set this up because this is one of our most exciting conversations that I get to host uh, this fall season and one that's near and dear to my heart. We're about to engage in a conversation with four brilliant futurists. Uh, and I don't say that lightly. These are four uh, brilliant people who have spent a lot of their time thinking about the future. And if you know me, something that uh, is uh, exciting and near and dear to my heart. What we want to discuss today uh, is the uh, need for us to not just educate one, but multiple generations of teachers and students who are willing to intentionally shape the future of society and to do so in a way that avoids negative unintended consequences, resulting in a world that is more just and equitable and fully sustainable. Uh, And that's a huge task. So, uh, which is why we have uh, four guests with us today. And Josh, I want to throw it to you so you can uh, get us started and uh, ask our guests to uh, introduce themselves. Thank you, Kapoor. I'm Josh Rapun. I'm the host of the What School Could Be
3: podcast. And I'm also an an ambassador and an evangelist for What School Could Be and all of its many endeavors. Um, I am just absolutely stoked over the moon to be um, with these four individuals today. Uh, Two of them have been on my podcast in the past. Um, All of them have come onto my radar screen over the last several years. Well, Laura, you go way back many years. Um, But um, it's just a real treat to be with you today. Um, And I've been looking forward to this for a long time. So I thought we would just do a round of introductions. Uh, Zoe uh, Weil, why don't we start with you? What is your story?
0: Thanks, Josh and Capono, And hi, everyone. It's really wonderful to be here, although I'm not so sure how I feel about being described as brilliant. um, That makes me a little nervous. Um, So I am the co-founder and president of the Institute for Humane Education. And our mission is to educate people to create a world where all humans, animals, and nature can thrive. And we do that by focusing on education because We believe that education is the root system underlying all other societal systems. So we offer loads of free resources for educators, and we have a solutionary guidebook because we're striving to educate people to be what we call solutionaries who can solve problems, which I'm sure I'll be talking about. And we have online graduate programs with Antioch University.
3: That's awesome. So thank you very much. Dr. Kristen Alford coming to us from Australia. What's your story?
4: So currently, I'm the director of MOD, which is a future-focused museum here on Gannayata in Adelaide, and um, I'm just really interested in about building futures capability for people. And so the the purpose of what we try and do through MOD is is really talk to young adults um, about uh, you know. What their futures might entail personally, but also what what that might mean on a more on a more global or systemic basis, and really help build that capability for them to think about the future, engage with the future, create the future. Um, and at the moment, I'm mostly obsessed by um, disruption and how we move from continually trying to increment a system that doesn't feel like it's working to actually wholesale redesigning a system um, that may be very, very different. And that's partly in preparation for an exhibition that's coming in about a year's time, and partly you know, um, responding to some of the feedback from our visitors and stakeholders about what's concerning them.
3: That's awesome. Thank you, Kristen. And I'll say to everybody that I forgot to mention, Zoe is in Maine. Um, and so I think Zoe and Kristen, you two are as far apart in the, on planet Earth as it's possible to get i think opposite sides of the world um, which is terrific and then so we'll shift over to laura McBain, who's in california laura hello and what's your story
5: i'm somewhere uh between Kristen and zo in the world and that way between y'all Um somewhere yeah uh yeah lovely to see everyone and excited to just meet all the folks who are in the chat and listening today thank you for showing up i think this is an important conversation and i'm just really honored to be amongst all these brilliant, uh, futurists in this conversation. So thank you for having me. Um, yes, my name is Laura McBain. I am one of the managing directors of the D School, as well as the co-leader of our K-12 lab. And you know, what we do at the D School is build folks creative confidence to think about, to uncover problems, reframe how they think about problems and come up with generative and bold solutions, um, that they can feel they can implement. And so I spent a lot of my time, time thinking about big, bold ideas. I love where Kristen is going already, which is how do we create really systematic change and move from, move away from these small incremental chains, but really think a bit about big, bold ideas. So just really excited for this conversation.
3: That's awesome. Thank you, Laura. And right here where I'm based in Honolulu is Aubrey, Dr. Aubrey Yi. Um, And so, Aubrey, it's so awesome to be together with you. Out here as this speck in the middle of the Pacific. And so what's your story?
6: Thanks, Josh. Yeah, I've known you for a while, too. And it's great to be here in Oahu, my home, your home, this place we love so much. Um, Gosh, my story. I'm a futurist. Obviously, it's why I'm here. But I have most recently spent about the last eight years working with the Hawaii Leadership Forum on Biniar Fellows Network. um, And my title was Network Weaver. So I was really in that regard looking at how we take leaders across the state and sort of in an adult learning environment, um, gear them towards the problems that we're facing and move the whole state of Hawaii towards a brighter and better future. So I recently turned that network over to the governance of itself, which was a really beautiful moment to kind of like pass that into their hands. And with that, I became what I call now free radical, which has been a fun chapter (laughs) that I've entered. Um, so I'm engaging in a few different projects and I really loved what Kristen and Laura both, both shared about systems change needing to be something that's a bit more radical than incremental, I think, at this point. Um, and so one of the groups I'm working with is called Culture Hack Labs, and we have a fellowship called the Rhizome Fellowship. And it's really looking at how do we hack these dominant narratives of culture that are holding the stuck systems in place. And they're so deeply embedded that we don't even notice them a lot of the time. So I'm working with social activists around the world on that. And then here in Hawaii, I um, started a school. So experimenting with the future directly. I have two kids and during the pandemic, we pulled them out of school and started homeschooling. And I've learned so much in that process and dove into like unschooling and all the different theories and all the things. And with the collective here um, on the North Shore of Oahu, we decided to try it out and see what we could do. So we've uh, about four months into trying out starting our own school, which is not for the faint of heart, I warn you, (laughs) but it's been a great endeavor.
3: That's awesome, Aubrey. I've had the chance already to visit her campus, which is about 60 acres at a former Boy Scout camp, or still it's a Boy Scout camp, in the the mountains way above the North Shore of Oahu, where the famed waves break. Um, And it was a remarkable couple of hours that I spent up there. So let's dive in. Um, I'm going to read a paragraph from a recent Washington Post piece by William McCaskill and Tyler John. And so, quote, it's easy to think of humanity's future as a bloodless abstraction, but future people will live lives just as real as our own. Right now, none of these people have a say in the decisions we make that shape their world. The present generation rules like a clumsy despot over the generations to come. Our shortcomings on particular issues that imperil the future share this common cause, that future generations receive almost no consideration in our political decision-making. We should fix that, end quote. So my question is, how do we fix that?
6: The first thing that came to mind when you asked that was, are we sure we want to? And I think when I say that, not me personally, but what I've learned through a lot of systems change efforts is that people will oftentimes say they want something. And then when it comes to actually what you need to let go of and do to make that happen, um, the systems are so pervasive and so deep that we're not willing to make those changes. So I think the first thing that has to happen is for us to actually acknowledge where we're holding on and why, and that's a radical accountability across everyone because we all somehow benefit from the way things are. So that idea of the the, despot who won't give up their power, I think in some way we all hold a little bit of that, even if it's a small seed that is maybe a piece of our shadow and really
0: bringing that to light is the first part of the conversation, so. Awesome. I'd love to jump in on that, Aubrey, because um, that rings so true to me. And I feel like the only way I have thought about to address that is through the solutionary framework that we developed at the Institute for Humane Education and bringing that to students. Mm. Because young people... um, I felt this way ever since I started my work as a humane educator, teaching about interconnected issues related to the environment and animals and human rights. And young people wanted to learn about these issues. You know, a lot of my friends didn't, you know, some people would say, Oh, so don't tell me about that. I don't want to know about that. Um, but young people always seem to want to know. And in learning about, you know, grave issues that could potentially be catastrophic for our planet or just plain heartbreaking, um, it's really important not to leave young people feeling helpless and impotent to create change and knowing that the generations before them have created a mess that, you know, they're now living in. And so this solutionary framework that we developed. First of all, it's based on the premise that a just and sustainable and humane world is possible. Um, that's that's the baseline. It's possible, how do we get there? And that framework asks some of the questions that you were just saying. First of all, it it says, let's look at a problem, let's understand the causes of that problem And that means learning systems thinking and becoming good critical thinkers to be able to be systems thinkers and looking at the deeper mindsets and worldviews that lead us to create these systems. And then when we identify those, the next question is to ask, okay, who and what is being harmed, not only by the problem we're addressing, but also by all of these interconnected systems that perpetuate it and who and what benefits. Because we need to be able to engage with the beneficiaries because all those who are benefiting don't wanna give up that power, just like you were saying. And then we look for leverage points and and devise solutions or, or look for where there are solutions, but uh, they're not being implemented because of some other systems problem. And so where can we intervene in the system? And that framework is um, designed to Um, allow students to become the best critical system, strategic and creative thinkers that they can be. And in the process of then creating change, not only building a better future, better communities, but also um, reinforcing their hope. Because as David or the Oberlin professor said, hope is a verb with its sleeves rolled up, which I love.
5: I'll jump in because I really love both of those. It's like, how do you release power? And I think part of, you know, when I think about the systems piece, you know, systems are made up of people, right? And people have the capacity to, to change that. And one of the things that we've been prototyping now, it won't be any surprise to Josh and that like, from the school perspective, is human-centered design, we talk about empathy. And one of the frameworks and kind of, I would say, approaches to features or approaching the features, how do we have empathy for the future? And I don't know about anyone in this space, but if you ever tried to like think about yourself five years from now, you actually have an abstract image. It's very hard to connect with your people's neuroscience behind this. Jane McGonigal, a former lovely uh, School for the Future keynote person has spoke about this, about our incapacity to actually envision beyond five years. And if we can't envision, how do we even feel it? How do we get to that? And so one of the things that we've been like really trying to lean in is how do we get people to feel the future? And one way to do that is um, is, is really thinking about our own descendants, us, us as ancestors to education and really diving in one to two generations ahead and thinking about, you know, what does your great, great grandson, great, great grandchild, great, great grandniece, what world will they live in? What kind of community are they going to be in? What would you want for them? And when we get to those core values, like these really core centric ideas. Then we start, can start designing a new world. But when we talk about an abstract system, we start d- disassociating ourselves from it. And then we design without intention, without empathy, without ethics, without equity, because it's not connected to us. And so I think part of this question that you're asking, Josh, is how do we get better at connecting to the future, mm-hmm. the future, as they say, very often, and bringing that sense of empathy, really visual to ourselves. When I ask, my, when I think about my, my niece and my great niece or my great grandchild, I, I have a very visceral reaction to that of what we want. And if we can start thinking about how we actually are shepherds to young people as if they, are our own, if they are our own children, if they are our community, our family. And if we can get to that level of empathy, I think we can get to the longer term, you know, the beautiful thing. So you're talking about, which is a sustainable and a just world. But I think we kind of um jump into like these, well, we're gonna do this for other people, for other people's kids. But the more that we can connect to um, you know, generations as if they are our, our own kids, then I think we're gonna get to a pathway about like how we can start moving toward that bold vision that, you know, Zoe and Dr. Dr. Yi laid out.
3: You know, um, Kristen, I wanna come to you, but I just wanna acknowledge that um Part of my inspiration for what we're talking about today is this book, uh, The Good Ancestor, uh, by Roman uh, Krisnark. And, um, Kristen, I was thinking that um, we could leave the current question on the table, which is, how do we fix this? But I also want to add into it uh, what Roman Krisnark talks about, which is uh, an epidemic of short-term thinking.
0: Yeah. Uh,
3: and I, I wonder if we can go specific with you, Kristen, in thinking about how your Museum of Discovery, MOD period, is actually tackling this. In, in what specific ways are you looking at these two things that we've been talking about so far?
4: Yeah, and, and look, the things that were coming to mind were, um, you know, I think it's really interesting the way that we talk about how difficult it is to sort of envision, because I think that comes from the same sort of school of thought around thinking about adult cognitive development and understanding that actually For most people thinking about the future is difficult because we are, we don't really start to naturally think about long-term futures until we gain wisdom and we don't really start to naturally think about systems until we gain wisdom. And so I've, I've got a little bit of an arc up (laughs) at the moment because people keep saying to me, Oh, you know, young people, we've got to rely on our young people. And there's a song, an Australian song by a a artist called Paul Kelly who says, young people, I never did a goddamn good thing till I was over 30. I think I keep coming back to that because I think we're asking young people to be wise, and that's that's a that's a lot of pressure, and we're negating the wisdom that actually we we have by growing through a system. And so I keep coming back to this notion of how how do we grow wisdom? Um, And I think you know that first that first thing that you talked about is an is an absence of wisdom, Um, and so so we we do want our young people to be enthused and we and we do want to bring them so that they can also become wise beings at some point but that that kind of perspective for me is is kind of absolving us of any any agency (laughs) as adults or any or any ability to grow into being wise beings and so when we think about you know um you know places of learning and um you know we can get stuck i think in young people in the education system but we should be really um, thinking about how we grow wisdom and what does that wisdom look like. And, and so, for us, when we're thinking about where, what we're doing at, at MOD, is you know, one of one of the things that I hear a lot around is, is First Nations wisdom. But I'll, I'll say what what that is is actually it's eldership. You know, it, it's not you're not wise just because you come from a First Nations background. you you're you're sitting in a culture that values eldership, and therefore that's where the wisdom comes from. Exactly. Um, and so, connecting to those kind of journeys of of not assuming that young people have all the answers, or not assuming um, that they're going to save the world, is is kind of on my mind at the moment. Mm-hmm. And so, yes, we are at MOD very much focused on on helping young people navigate the future. But for me, it's also about saying you are on a journey with many other people. We're going to showcase the work of what our researchers are doing to try and solve s- solve problems and make the world a better place we're going to show you journeys of innovation. Um, we're going to talk to you about how people are tackling issues like climate or, or like thinking about the ethics of, of AI and technology. And and one of the events that we run quite deliberately is to bring researchers and the general public together to have ethical discussions. Mm -hmm. So it's not, it's not just about, not just about developing young people. It's actually, it's actually about taking us all on a journey of, of wisdom. And I think if I go back to that first quote that you talked about, I think the other thing, the other thing that I think needs a bit of unp- unpicking is that, um, I think it used to perhaps be the case that we could work hard at the lives that we were in, mm-hmm. knowing that we were making the place better for the next generation, because that's progress, right? And so a white Western notion of progress was like, I will work hard and in working hard, I will make my life better. And now we're at a point where that assumption doesn't hold and people are still in that kind of action orientation. And so to unpick that, we have to unpick those assumptions and we have to say, yes, by working hard, you can make your life better and the life of others. But now we are in an interconnected global system. Now we are in long time. Now we are in things that do require actually great wisdom to hold all of that complexity. And so the 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 question I just keep coming back to at the moment is, is, is how do we enable generations of us, our young people, our millennials, Gen Xs, boomers, who, whoever, how do we enable all of us to to grow and become wise?
2: I, I would love to follow up really quickly. I know we have a lot of big questions, so maybe this one is a really small question. Um, To, to bridge what Kristen, what you just said about uh, uh bridging back to ancestors and then uh, maybe uh, what I heard you talk about was the agency that we have. Um, you know, Zoe, your your, your book, uh, The World Becomes What We Teach, uh, was, was impactful for me. And uh, I think, you know, we have a lot of educators, specifically teachers, classroom teachers with us uh, on uh, YouTube Live and Facebook Live and through our community. Uh, and I think one of the things that's uh, always great for us to remind ourselves of as educators is that agency that we have. Sometimes we ju- it just feels so hopeless, right? You, you have this kid for, uh, you know, maximally a year in most cases, right? And sometimes a semester, uh, sometimes a day a week in that semester. And the agency that we have as educators, uh, sometimes we don't recognize it or see it. Uh, so- sometimes we feel it, but we can't see the output of it. Um, is, is there a lesson that you learned in putting that book together uh, that would help us uh, educators on, on listening uh, kind of feel viscerally what Kristen was talking about?
0: Um, yes, and, and Kristen, thank you for what you shared. For me, it feels like a both and. Um, I'm struck by how much anxiety and depression is growing among youth, and school feels pretty irrelevant for a lot of them, not focused on what's important, not providing agency, not necessarily cultivating wisdom and teachers are stressed to the max and overwhelmed. And you know, Kapono to sort of see if I can answer your question with a story. A few years ago, I was doing um, a professional development workshop for teachers and curriculum designers. And I used the prompt In 50 years, I want the world to be, and then there was to fill in the blank. And the first teacher to raise her hand responded, still here. In 50 Mm -hmm. years, I want the world to be still here. Sort of the level of um, despair that that response indicates was pretty alarming to me. And I asked the rest of the group, how many of you feel the same way? And most of the people by a large majority raise their hand. So these are teachers and curriculum designers. And if teachers and curriculum designers are worried that the world may not still be here in 50 years, and then what is being conveyed to students? So I do think that my, my recommendation to answer your question specifically Capono, is we need to remind ourselves of how much in the world has gotten better. You know, there's so many positive changes that have happened in my own lifetime. You know, when I was born, uh, it was illegal in many states for black and white people to get married. And the concept of gay marriage wasn't even a concept that anybody was discussing. The air in, in many cities in the United States was dirtier than it is now waterways were dirtier than they are now. Around the world, half of all people lived in extreme poverty. That number is about 10% now. That's still crazy high, but it's an improvement. So many things have changed for the better. And if we can remind ourselves that of that, then we can see, oh, we just have to keep going in this direction. Now, there are some potentially catastrophic problems, and we are seeing climate change and habitat destruction and species extinction as one of those that's really profoundly frightening. But we have to steep ourselves in the possibilities for positive change. And when we do, we can bring that to our students and engage them. And I feel like young people, when they have the opportunity to roll their sleeves up and to address issues that are of concern to them and make a difference and and feel kristen as you were saying their empathy expanding their compassion being welcomed and then directed toward doing good in the world then that agency serves them so it's not just serving the world it's not just laying a whole bunch of problems on them I have seen kids where teachers are teaching about problems in age-appropriate ways and engaging kids, and those kids are just on fire with excitement and and enthusiasm, and they love learning, and they love that agency. And I've seen kids be prevented, really, from learning about real-world problems who just feel despair. Nobody's talking about what they see around them.
3: Aubrey, you shared with me that you've been advocating for a youth-led governmental level um, office of future generations. Wow, I would love to be in that office um, for many years, which is similar to other movements. So in what capacity do you do this work and what obstacles have you faced and what, if any, successes have you experienced in establishing this office of future generations?
0: Oh,
6: I wish I could say I've been actually working on that. It's more of an idea that we've talked about and tossed around in scenarios, but I think it is something that's really powerful, potent and possible. And that article you shared about uh, the work happening in Japan, I think that was a really great example of how that could start at a community level. Um, But yeah, I mean, for years, it's been discussions in the future circles I sit in that, you know, why don't we have something like an office for future generations, where you're actually having people represent, just like you do with the rights of nature movement, where you have representation for something like a river or a mountain or an, another object that doesn't have a voice for itself, um, future generation could be that same kind of, um, you know, representation. So that's the oh. idea.
4: Oh, sorry, Josh I was to say I think Wales actually has a commissioner for the future, which they do, is yeah. looking specifically at, at, at bringing that voice in in into formal policy settings as opposed to sort of sitting um, sitting more in the innovation space, but sitting okay. in in the system, which I think is really fascinating. And,
6: and in all honesty too, Josh, I've sort of given up on policy as the major space for lots of change. I think it's really important and it's a piece of the puzzle, but I think in terms of really pushing some of the type of change that in the instruction, the other panelists were talking about, which is really whole systems overhaul or actually new systems coming in to replace the old, I don't know that's gonna come from policy,
3: mm. so. Where's it gonna come from then?
6: So one of the um, biomimicry ideas that's been really capturing my imagination is the imaginal cells. Um, And it's this idea from, you know, the caterpillar when it moves into the butterfly, um, when it goes into the cocoon and turns into the goo and actually loses like all semblance of what it was. There's these things called imaginal cells, which are, again, free radicals. They're like little bits of actually autonomous organisms that appear within the goo and then start to organize themselves and become eventually what is the butterfly. So I actually believe, and my work and my excitement focuses on starting to notice the bright lights um, globally that are starting to really think outside of the box. There's a lot of work happening in um, uh, post-capitalist realities, because I think the elephant in the room we haven't really mentioned here is that, you know, neoliberal capitalism is at the root of a lot of these issues. So what does it look like when we start to transition in a just way to post-capitalist realities? And to me, those are some of the imaginal cells that are lighting up conversations that are big, um, that have the mm-hmm. capacity for bringing about some real change. And it, it all starts with education because, you know, the youth and the future. And, and I loved how you talked about that in your book. So, you know, that really, uh, the kids are what start to build. And, and I think here in Hawaii, we've seen a really beautiful example of that with the native Hawaiian charter school movement, where there was a deep investment in, um, reestablishing Hawaiian language as a core piece of learning and how like rewiring the brain through language and connection to culture, a generation now later has created this, you know, amazing cohort of Native Hawaiian youth and youth-led movements that wouldn't have existed without that investment Mm in my charter school. So just one example of how that can take shape. Imaginal cells forming and starting something new.
3: Love that. Laura, Can I, I wanna do one of these crowdsourced questions that it's actually coming from somebody that you and I both know and love uh, Mark Hines, right? So, for all of you, Mark Hines is Dr. Mark Hines is like the he's like the Obi Wan Kenobi, Yoda, uh, of Jubilee, Altman Library, of wonder yes. uh, here in Honolulu. But just right. <laughs> I've been um, Laura. We've been obsessed with um, Justin Reich's um, podcast about subtraction in action. I've been thinking a lot about how we we miss talking about the things that need to be taken away in order for us to move yeah. forward towards those solutionaries yeah. and and so on and so forth. Yeah. So I wonder what, what you think about that in terms of subtraction and and what we can remove that might help open the gates here towards kids, kids and educators who shape the future, which you've written about.
5: Yeah, I mean, fence up bold. Going back with Kristen, like, how bold do we want to be? Are we getting ahead of, I mean, right off the bat, timetable in classrooms, like, let's talk about it that the and this that's the urgent now that you reference you know in rova's book of like the idea that learning happens in small increments like if we're gonna do learning you know that is deep and gets to the projects that zoe you're talking about as a former project-based learning you know teacher for 15 years the time is such an element and we assume that learning happens in these like siloed domains by content and that is just not how the world works uh <laughs> And fact, we're, you know, and so, I mean, if we're going to subtraction, it's getting the things that are the barriers for deep learning in schools, you know? Mm-hmm. So including timetable radically on test scores, like why are we measuring some content or are we measuring impact? I mean, there's some wild things that we could start thinking about, mm-hmm. we're thinking about subtraction and innovation. So there's like, I'd say the system level pieces. And then I think there's probably a more like subtle piece. Um, as an educator, which is this like understanding that we have this like urgency of like, I don't teach this one content this year. This child will never grow to be, they're gonna never go to college and they're gonna sit on their couch for the rest of the, that's the mindset. And God forbid they don't understand fractions by eighth grade. Like this like, this ever ending tension. I taught eighth grade for a while, so I know that, that that's a common conversation. But we have to remember That learning happens over time. And I think this is the key thing as educators. Like, you know, what Zoe, you were saying about looking at over time, we're talking about tracing change. We're talking about trend casting. We're talking about understanding how trends change over time. And if we want our young people to be the shapers of the future, they not only need to know, you know, about the past, because I think that's a misnomer in futures. It's like, and I know everyone in this call will think, we only focus on the future. No, you look doubly back and doubly forward in order to understand trends and also to understand impact. And so I think we're thinking about, you know, with our students holding on to that capacity that they've had teachers before you, they will have teachers after you. Our job is to equip them to be good learners, to be curious, to be creative. So that when they encounter new information, right, concepts that they have never seen in their life, cause they will, how do we ensure that they have enough um, creativity, curiosity, ability to navigate ambiguity so they can learn about those things and shape it in the way that they see fit. Mm-hmm. And so I don't want to answer your question, Josh, but I think that will know. Mm-hmm. But that's kind of the piece that I think there's this internal piece that we as educators need to hold is that I have a short time with these young people and I use my best to make sure that they see themselves as shapers. Mm-hmm. Right? I, there's this like ongoing joke that we talk about and I'm sure educators who are listening know this is like, I have, I don't know how many conferences I've been to, but we as educators have said, oh, we have to prepare students for the future that does not exist. How am I even going to do that? Like it's a pretty malvacious goal. And so we spent a lot of time thinking like moving beyond preparing students from the future, but giving them the, the skills, the capacity and the courage to shape the future. And that it requires is why we're all on this call a real sense and, I think, passion for features. Um, And so that's what lights me up when we think about this work.
2: Laura, can I push in really quickly on that for a second? Um, But having, you know, uh, had the privilege of of facilitating uh, d.school tools in classrooms uh, and knowing the power of that uh, and having also sat in those eighth grade uh, fraction conversations, Mm -hmm. I know exactly what you're talking about. I'm a teacher. I'm in a classroom. I, that fraction conversation is happening around me. Yeah. Uh, what's what's one move that I can do? Uh, yeah. I, I've I've seen moves out of out of the tools and the ideas coming out of the d school, but what's one what's one move that I could do?
5: I mean, one thing is like, how do you apply them? So, I mean, if you're thinking about fractions, and if you're thinking about virality, which is exponential growth, and I'm thinking about Twitter and TikTok, let's teach a lesson about how something I think it going to go by that's a fractions lesson that's a that's a mathematical question right that people can engage with that also gets at this question so i could teach that i could teach a whole lesson about how exponential change works within mathematics and connect it to futures right so there's an application piece that i think we could play with around what are the concepts that we're playing you know with around futures within classrooms and I think if, you know, you're thinking about the walk or the march toward the textbook, uh, which is another approach, I think we also have to think about what are small ways that we can start playing with building up these mindsets. I'm very aware, having been an AP European history teacher, that like you kind of, there is stuff you gotta do. And I also know that the power of reflection, um, is something really important. You know, I was a maker teacher for a while in high high. And I think there's a very simple thing that we can start just refusing in our classrooms is when you're making something. Um, and I know Josh was a part of the maker movement for years. I can tell you when that movement started, we really were focused on, can we make this thing? That was the question. I never heard a conversation on, should we make this, who will be harmed and who will be hindered that I could do tomorrow. And so those are the type of conversations that we can start having in schools that I think oh, so that's exactly what you're getting to, is like these reflective oh. conversations about what am I making and where is this going to go in the future?
3: So I think that this is actually a perfect moment for you to share what happened in San Mateo. Um, I think it's such a remarkable story. It starts with one teacher and has one copy of your book. Um, but, but riffing off of what Laura is talking about here. There had to be both some subtraction and some addition uh, because you're adding in the solutionary concept but but there were only so many hours on a day Um, and so how did that work in san mateo how did how did that briefly how did that unfold
0: um so i i wish we actually had andrea Yagoyan on this call right now so she was the uh environmental literacy coordinator for the office of education in san mateo county which is the county uh, Palo Alto and San Francisco serves about 113,000 students. And she read my book, she brought it to the team in the office of education. They all gelled around it and said, we're going to make this the philosophy and framework for what we do in this county. So how do you do that? Well, they did it through, um, fellowship programs and training teachers. And so they trained hundreds of teachers. Now there are many more than hundreds of teachers in San Mateo County. So it's not like they trained every teacher, but when the teachers would go through the fellowship program, no matter what they taught, uh, the age or the subject, they created a unit and they brought that unit into their classroom. So every teacher did it in their own way. There wasn't just one way. So I can't tell you how each teacher found the subtraction. I think it was more like Capona, what you were just saying about fractions and your brilliant answer, Laura, that, you know, you you use this for this other learning outcome. And so that's what the solutionary units are doing as they're being brought into those classrooms.
3: this is a general question for all four of you, but, um, and it comes from Chris McNutt. Uh, so he's a big fan of you. Uh, he's the co-founder of the human restoration project, uh, out of Ohio. And he's asking a general question, but Chris and I thought it would be appropriate to ask you first, because your museum of discovery caters to 15 to 23 year olds. He asks, how can we protect educators who are teaching the critical thinking? needed to be a shaper of the future acknowledging the dicey moment that we're in and that you talked about about 40 minutes ago and then the second part is he wonders about the role that students families play in this process of educating shapers of the future and since your museum of discovery caters to not only the kids and their but their families as well so i wonder if you could start us off on that
4: yeah i mean it's so interesting because i I think you know in thinking about this I was just reflecting on, on, on talking through the wisdom of generations and, and kind of going that there, there's an assumption that there is some, somebody in the middle who is blocking. We have people who are educators who are driving change. We have people in, in, in those liminal spaces that you talked about, Aubrey, driving change. We, we have faith in our young people to drive change, and yet we, we assume there's something in the middle that's causing this huge blockage. And the feedback I keep getting um, when we're talking about this or talking about radical change in schools is it's parents. Um, and I think, I think that's a, that's such an interesting problem for us as a, as a place of education and a place maybe of lifelong learning. And I think, I think for us at a museum context, we have a, we have a unique and wonderful opportunity to, to have conversations with parents about how the future can be different because they're not in a position of responsibility in that context. They've not necessarily come through the museum system with the baggage that comes from their own schooling or their own experience they're coming to have a new immersive experience that that has the opportunity to wonder and delight them as much as that 15 to 25 year old audience and so i think you know there was a comment in the chat which was really talking about you know maybe maybe it's that we lose our capacity for curiosity and we lose our capacity for awe and so i think the sorts of things that we're trying to do is is just you know spark people into into refinding that and I, I i mean i use spark a little bit cheekily because one of the things that we're literally installing at the moment is our um, is our pain chairs which um, is an installation where you where you sit in them and then we electrocute you until it hurts and then we play around with um, different aspects of light or placebo or environment to make it hurt more or less and it really shows the research that indicates that chronic pain is built from the pathways in our body that are trained to expect, and how that might change using things like um VR treatments that then can alter some of those, some of those pathways. Um, and I think, you know, that that's, a, that's crazy. That's amazing. You know, and I think that's interesting to, to, to anyone. <laughs> um, and so trying to bring people face to face with those kind of experiences that might spark wonder and awe um, might be a little way of, of moving, moving past this kind of mass of, of, of inertia that we sense in this system we're finding hard to identify.
3: And I remember when you and I had our interview for my podcast, Kristen, um, we talked about the idea that as a young person, if I imagined myself as a 18-year-old and I was experiencing this pain installation, if you will, that one of the things that might spark is that I would think, oh, wow, Shazam, maybe I want to work on pain management as my purpose, as my future. And now, so as a solutionary, I have to start thinking of all the ramifications and Laura, whether I should do this or not do this.
0: Yeah.
3: It was just it's just remarkable how your museum, Kristen, opens this whole conversation up, but includes the families in the process. And
0: I, and I
4: think it goes to that question that we've all been talking about, which is that question of self-efficacy or or agency and, and the the fact that having having that I mean, I loved what you said, Zoe, about you know, the you know, talking about things at the right age group so that you could actually take some agency. You know, in the context that you were in, and you know, one of one of the exhibitions we're preparing is all all around thinking about um, new systems and hope, and and what we want people to do is to come into that. This will be for 2024. Come into that exhibition, offering them a range of different approaches, and, and we want to measure their self efficacy at the end. Do they feel like they've got more agency? Do they leave with more hope? Is that something that we can we can do? Um, you know, re- recognizing that the issues are serious and we, and we can't dismiss them, but we, but feeling powerless is, isn't, isn't actually a way to exist either. So that's, that's, yeah. that's really on my mind at the moment.
6: One comment that sort of threads all of these parts together. And I feel like it's, we're naming from different angles, this radical shift from school as a place where a teacher and expert imparts knowledge and student receives to like a cultivated environment where the inner genius from each child is given space to emerge and allowed to experiment till it finds, like you said, Josh, that spark of like, wow, maybe this is something I want to work on. But really believing that each child comes to to this planet with something that they're destined to do and that there's passion inside them that we just need to cultivate, curate and catalyze.
3: Aubrey, I would love for you to describe what you're thinking and feeling in this moment as you begin, because you really still are at the beginning of Pupukea Schoolhouse, mm-hmm. and these little kiddos yeah. who are, at the beginning of their journey, but really you're sending them forward to be good ancestors. Mm -hmm. That's the feeling that really jumped out at me when I was visiting your campus up in the mountains up there is that that, this is the very beginning. And I, I wonder what's going through your mind and your heart about that.
6: Sure. Yeah. I mean, some of the things that have been shared, we've thrown a lot of the traditional things out the window. You know, there's no grades, no tests, no homework. Or even looking at, you know, like, what is this whole, like, standards of learning and certain things that need to be learned at certain times and and even, you know, pushing that to the side. And so what does it look like to really look at the children that are in your room and cultivate an environment where they can learn? And we've, we've deeply embedded ourselves in nature. And I think mm-hmm. there's so much to be said for just getting hands, feet and all of it in the dirt. We happen to live in a beautiful place here in Hawaii that's possible year round. So really leaning into the wisdom of Earth and nature and all that's available to us. And I know, Zoe, in your the beginning of your book, you have that beautiful story of the boy you know, a budding naturalist and observing the natural world. And I just think there's so much available to us that's outside of textbooks. Um, and I think a lot about the, the difference between schooling, learning and education. And they're three radically different paradigms, and we tend to conflate them. Right. We've all been schooled, and it's a sort of an acculturation process. Learning happens anywhere, all the time, everywhere. Um, and I really learned that in my homeschool experience, taking the kids traveling and just realizing how much you can learn just by being in life and being curious. And then education being sort of a system that all of those things are embedded in. Um, so yeah, so with this this experiment that we're trying out with Pupukea Schoolhouse, it's how do we really lean into some of the more radical edges, because we do have a parent community that's more open to that. So my hope is that, you know, a year from now, we'll be sharing with you some of our our successes and learnings and ways that we can model this out for other people to try.
3: Laura, it feels like this is a moment to circle back to what you were talking about about 45 minutes ago, which is that process of becoming skilled at empathy. Um, And that what Aubrey is talking about here is that empathy for the ground that you walk on and the environment that you live in is crucial. If you leave that out, we leave out a major part of the equation of being a good ancestor and being a shaper of the future. I wonder what do you think about that?
5: Absolutely. I mean, I think that's the key is like, because I think one of the things is like we're thinking about ourselves, but we are always in selves, in community, in context with the world around us, you know? And I think when we think about a young person, you know, three generations out, we have the self, we have the society they live in, we have the larger ecosystem. And that is how we think about our, we're always in connection to the community. And I think there's, you know, you know, I work with a lot of schools, um, that are more urban, that may not have as much access to nature. And you can learn so much as well in those environments about what's going on in the building, what's happening in the street corner, talking to shop owners. There's so Mm -hmm. much history around us that we can start seeing. And I think when we think about this, and again, going back to empathy for the future, and I can drop in kind of our five approaches to futures, which is really reflection guides to like how you approach a problem (laughs) with a futures mindset. And we're building kind of a starter kit for educators on futures where they can kind of play with this. But we did this exercise where we had people, um, I think I told Kristen about this, but we built their visual ancestors. They did a, they did a portrait of their ancestor and was awesome. beautiful. Um, and it allowed them to connect. And what we noticed was like, what kind of world do they live in?
2: I'm
5: what do they see when they wake up? Mm-hmm. What is in their hearts? What do they value? What are they hoping for? And it's super interesting. I will say when we did this exercise and we've done this, um, in Austin, Texas, we've done it in California, we've done it in New York, um, we're doing it in Chicago and Philly and you've got superintendents, you've got parents coming in and we notice it is the conversation that happens around this work that people all of a sudden tap in and like end up spending like two hours making their portraits. Because they have now started to really feel, well, what does that world look like? Mm-hmm. And again, it, I think it came up in one of the, the side conversations um, for the audience, but like we get to these core fundamental beliefs that Aubrey's talking about, which is my connection to the self, my connection to nature, these values. And again, as a designer um, who thinks about bringing communities together, as we think about the future, it is the seeking the visions of coexistence that we're aiming for. And uncovering these values, and so we try to do exercises like this that communities can do, educators can do, not because you are trying to predict what the future is. That's not what we're doing. We're having people feel the future, and uncover what are the conversations does this does this arise for them? What are they, are they really living to the values that they want to hold? And if they are, how can we amplify that? And if they're not, right? How do we actually you know make make adjustments to the current state? Um,
3: so I I have, I think I've kind of cooked up a way that, that we can bring this, wow, it's we've only got a couple of minutes left, of <laughs> and I'm by like a shot here, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, amazing. Um, but I think I've come up with a way that we can sort of bring this to a close that would be kind of neat. Um, so again, uh, page 223 in Roman's book, Stop Me In My Tracks, um, because he was talking about intergenerational time Um, And he came up with kind of a protocol for when a group of people get together like we have, and a series of questions uh, that are based on some themes that we could ask each other uh, or ask ourselves that would generate a futures-directed conversation. And they're under these themes, deep time, humility, intergenerational justice, transcendent goal, holistic forecasting, cathedral thinking, so, I taught medieval history. You know, the cathedrals took hundreds of years to build. And then the last one, which is legacy mindset. So I thought that we could end today by having each of you address this question. And so, maybe we'll start with you. What legacy do you want to leave for your family, your community, and for the living world?
0: Oh, that's an easy one <laughs> <laughs> um, the the fundamental, philosophy and principle that underlies our work at the institute for humane education is how can we do the most good and the least harm to all life to other people to other species and to the ecosystems that sustain us and with that as an underlying principle and the solutionary framework as a process The two together lead us toward collaboratively solving problems. And I sort of wanted to touch on what Chris McNutt asked. And I love Chris and his work um, with the families. And we live in these polarized times and we're, you know, constantly arguing. And I want my legacy to be that with this underlying principle and a set of thinking skills that we practice that we can dissipate the polarization and the either-or thinking and together build a just, humane, and sustainable future. Wow. That's,
3: <laughs> drop the mic. So, Krista, what, what legacy do you want to leave for your family and your community and for the world?
4: Well, it's a bit hard to follow, sorry, to be frank, but um, when you asked that question, I was, um, My head went to one of the step up dance movies. And I think, I think why it went there was because when I imagine what the future could be, if I do my work, right, I imagine people dancing. So I imagine it's kind of movement where we are in conversation with each other. There's a reciprocity. Um, we are agile, we're flexible. We're moving around in really interesting ways. There's an astonishment at the beauty of the, you know, applied talent of the, of the human form and there's joy. And so I've just, I've just got this kind of beautiful community, kind of, um, maybe we're at a wedding, maybe we're at something, people are dancing, they're in conversation. That kind of movement for the way that we move through the world is, is something that I, I, hope I'm, I hope I'm achieving by, by helping people be more literate and more capable to think about the future.
0: Wow,
3: that's awesome. Dance like no one's watching. <laughs> Laura. What is what is your legacy that you want to leave behind for your community and your family and the world?
5: I love that question. Thank you for asking it. You know, and it's like this is the true question: like what's coming up? And as I think about this question, I'm like, oh, I'm emotional, which tell which is this insight for me to be like, oh, that's that's the air. Let's play with that. Um, and I was thinking, you know, as we as I was reflecting when you asked it, I think it's pretty relatively simple. Um, whether it's with my family or with the folks that I work with. I want to know that I made a difference. And in particular, I want to know, I hope and I aspire to help people see the capacity for their own brilliance. Mm -hmm. I think we shortchange people so much or we underestimate them, systems or whatever, or our mindsets. And I think if I could just help more people, like really see that, that they do have this great capacity, um, that would make me happy.
3: Wow. I guess the rest of the world calls it goosebumps. Here in Hawaii, we call it chicken skin. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Laura. That's great. Aubrey, what is what's the legacy that you want to leave to your community and your family and the world?
6: That's a beautiful question. I probably answer it different on different days, but in this moment, what's coming through is this um, vision again of the imaginal cells becoming the butterfly, and I think we're in a moment of becoming goo as a planet, um, and everything's dissolving and. If I could be one of the imaginal cells that helps to bring that butterfly into being, that's my hope. Um, and again, I think it's, you know, touching others with love and really holding that in your heart and the hope for a positive future. Um, there's a quote by Robert Browning, I'll just read that I think really speaks to that. And he says, "There's it's one of my favorites of all time. There's an inmost center in us all where the truth abides in fullness. And to know rather consists in opening out a way where the imprisoned splendor may escape. Rather than affecting entry for a light supposed to be without, and it's this idea that within us all is the spark of genius, and how might we create that that space and that opening? And I see schools as the nurturing garden, where you know it's really a sacred temple where each child is honored for the the spark of genius that they brought earthside by incarnating in this lifetime.
2: Wow, that's terrific! Thank you i am gonna thank people in a second and josh i'm actually gonna throw it to you for the last word but i, I i'm gonna put uh a what school could be uh period at the end of the sentence uh which is amazing and needs to continue um i want to uh on on behalf of what school could be i uh, just initially thank everybody uh and tell everybody out of the audience that um there are ways that we can um continue this work together uh what school could be we have a few resources i'd like to share with you Um, There's several channels you can continue to work together. Please join us in the community. Uh, This conversation can continue there. Join us uh, at community.whatschoolcouldbe.org. And we have two amazing opportunities to to create cohort and to do this work together. Uh, First of all, we've uh, just launched a a master's in teaching and learning and a master's in educational leadership cohort uh, with our partners Two Revolutions uh, and Spalding University. It's gonna be an amazing opportunity. One of the things that we're really proud of is equitable access As best as we can, we've gotten this program down to $11,500, which we're so proud of because we want to make sure that everybody has access as as best as possible. The second thing that I'm really excited about is our uh, micro-credentials. Really encourage you to check them out. We have a micro-credential for each one of our playlists. And it's just a really uh, succinct but powerful way uh, to move your teaching practice forward and also uh, gain uh, continuing education uh, credit. Uh, if you need so for uh, for the work that you're doing. Um, and on that note, I will come back and I'll thank uh, Laura McBain, Dr. Audrey Yee, uh, Kristen Alfred, and uh, author Zoe Weil and my co-host Josh Rapoon, throwing it back to you, Josh. So thank you everybody. I think the thing that I can
3: say in this moment that would be the most meaningful is that to the four of you, your work has changed the arc of my life. Um, in some extremely profound ways. And that's that's the gift that I can give forward to the future, to my family, my community, and the world, is to provide an opportunity for the four of you whose work is so instrumental in helping us shape the future, um, that your voices be heard. And so I really, really appreciate all four of you. And thank you for the time today. And thank you to Be, and capono for all of the backside hosting that goes on behind the scenes here to make this possible. Um, and so it's awesome. Thank you so much.
0: Thank you everyone. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.
1: These special episodes are edited by Kim Dilts and Evan Kurohara. Our theme music comes from the vast catalog of music created by my friend of 40 years, the remarkable pianist, Michael Sloan. Producer of 12 albums with over a hundred songs, Michael Sloan is featured in Apple Music, Spotify, and all major music platforms. You can also find his work at his YouTube channel. Michael has listeners in over hundred countries and over 2,000 cities to date. Support these episodes with remarkable, innovative, and imaginative educators and education leaders by giving us your own rating and writing us a review at your favorite podcast store. Please join the What School Could Be Global online community by going to community.whatschoolcouldbe.org or by downloading the What School Could Be app from your favorite app store. The What School Could Be podcast is brought to you by Josh Rapoon Productions. Send your feedback to josh at whatschoolcouldbe.org. Follow the show on Twitter at WSCB podcast. Until the next episode, ahui and take good care.